All right, grab your Bibles. We are going to open up to the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the floor near you. We have Bibles throughout the room. Um, If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that one with you. It's our gift to you. We would love for you to open it up this week and actually read the Song of Songs on your own. In fact, I'll keep encouraging you to do that. It's only eight chapters long, um, and, um, and I guarantee it'll be both challenging and ultimately rewarding as you dig in and wrestle with it, okay? Now, the Song of Songs is, as I told you last week and reiterated this week, a book of ancient Near Eastern erotic poetry. Um, And I told you to read it last week, and I know some of you did because some of you made comments to me about it. Things like, man, there's a lot of myrrh in that book. I don't even know what nard is. And there's sheep. And that's true. All of those things are in the book. It is kind of strange. And, and, and what was implied by that was, Steve, we're not quite seeing the erotic piece here. Um, we see how it's kind of like love poetry, but it just doesn't seem honestly very erotic to us. And, um, and I'm cool with that, right? When he compares her nose to the Tower of Lebanon, that just is not very sexy. I mean, it really, I mean, it's just, um, it seems awkward. It's probably an insult, right? It's not. Um, so here's the thing. It's, it's, it's going to need us to dig in a little bit. Um, today, what we're going to do is we're going to open up a few of the passages, take a look at what I mean when I say erotic poetry, and, and I want to equip you a little bit to actually open the text and read it and interact with it um, in a little bit uh, a more sophisticated way. But ultimately, where we're going with this is I want to show you God's plan for erotic love in your life and how erotic love fits into really the full flow of love in our lives. Um, because I think as we understand that, it, it gives us a context to, to really not only understand this text, but understand our own hearts. Because the reality is, as we dig through this book, erotic love flows through this book like electricity through copper wire. I mean, this book lights up with, with um, just a celebration of, of, God, of God's gift of, of sexual love. Okay, um, we're going to take a look in, in chapter one and take a look at some verses to open it up. Now, as we do, I want to remind you, this is poetry. Okay, it is written in a foreign language, which makes it difficult because we lose, as it's translated in English, um, some of the poetic effect. Right. I mean, imagine we have poetry that rhymes. You were to translate that into Chinese. It wouldn't rhyme anymore. Right. They would lose some of the effect. And, and we do as well. We lose some of the original poetic effect. It's also transferring cultures. This is an ancient Hebrew culture. Uh, it's quite different than us today. And so as a result, some of the references are going to be foreign to us. and We're going to have to stretch a little bit to reach them. You will find throughout this book a ton of sensual language. And by sensual, I want you to catch this. I'm not saying specifically sexual. Sensual means that it appeals to the five senses, right? So, so sight and, and smell and taste and, 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 and how things feel, right? It's, it's talking about lighting up the five senses because ultimately erotic love is sensual love. It is ex- expressed and experienced through the five senses. And so as you're reading through the poetry and you read things about myrrh and nard, uh, maybe just fill in your favorite fragrance, Okay. Um, anything but Axe body spray would probably work there. Um, cause that's actually a female repellent if you haven't learned that yet. Um, but let's take a look at, at some of the verses here. Um, song of Solomon one, starting in verse nine, I compare you, my love to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. That's a really good start. Um, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded 
with silver. Okay, so right here, um, I know this is going to be one of the difficult parts. Some of you are like, Steve, he just compared her to a horse. That can't be complimentary in any culture, can it? Right? I mean, even if, you're, even if your gal loves horses, she probably doesn't want to be a horse. Um, so what are we supposed to do with this? Well, here's the thing. Again, culturally, it helps us to understand this. Pharaoh's army. So notice what he says. Pay careful. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. What kind of horses pulled the chariots? Stallions. Stallions were used for war. And so the stallions pulled the chariots to war. And Pharaoh's chariots were... um, ridiculously scary. When those things came rumbling down on you, it was terrifying. And there are accounts of cities that were being invaded had a a countermaneuver, basically, where they would release mares in heat out into the battlefield of the charging stallions. And you can imagine what happened, right? They're charging, go, go, go. And the stallion's like, yeah, yeah, what? What's that smell? Right? They slow down. Where am I? What is that? Oh, that's interesting, right? It, it creates confusion. It creates kind of chaos. It, it mixes things up. And what he's saying is, my love, you do that to my heart. Like, I'm, I got a plan, you know? Like, I'm moving from point A to point B. I'm, I'm, I'm like, it's like a guy when he goes into a grocery store, you know that? Like, like he's on a mission. He, he got three things on his list. He's going to hit all three things and get out, right? And, and so you're like moving. You got your day planned. I'm going to go to the bank and I'm going to go get a book at the library and I'm going to do my study thing. And then, and then you're just walking along and you're focusing and your time is cramped. And, and then she walks by and your eyes get big and your belly does that weird thing. You know what I'm talking about. That churning kind of like, oh, what was, you know? And the next thing you know, you're like a mile away standing in the parking lot watching her drive away. You have no idea what you were doing or where you were going. So you're like, I think I will sit here under this tree and design jewelry for that lovely, lovely neck. I mean, that's what he says, right? It's like, I compare you to a mare. Your cheeks are lovely. You know, your neck with strings of jewels. Oh, let's make ornaments of gold, right? He's like, I just want to put gold on that neck. Um, and, and that's what happens, right? I mean, he's, what he's saying is, is that's the erotic impact of your presence. It has, it has this effect on me of like confusing me and, and distracting me and, and I can't focus, right? I'm have to write this paper and I'm just thinking of your neck, right? I mean, it's, we've all kind of experienced a little bit of that. It's, it's um, erotic love. It is strong desire. Um, flip over to chapter eight because I want us to hear from the women. This book is a series of poems where the guy is speaking to the woman or describing the woman, and the woman is speaking to the guy or describing the guy, or she sometimes speaks to this chorus of women known as the Daughters of Jerusalem. Um, and that gets kind of weird because they're having this intimate moment, and then suddenly the chorus in the background is like, love! And it's, that's, that's not cool. Um, that's supposed to be private. Um, but, but remember that this is not describing real people. This isn't describing a real conversation. It's poetic, exploring real emotions, exploring real human experience. But she's not actually describing like, oh, yeah, the chorus is in while I'm having this intimate embrace. And they're in the background singing about the love of my, you know, that doesn't. So um, they're not a bunch of creepers just following them around. It is poetic. But let's take a look at chapter eight. And we're going to look at um, 
a poem from the woman. And, and, and the reason I picked this one is, again, it, it seems a little bit inaccessible, but I want to highlight some of the motifs because they run through the book. First of all, in 8, chapter 1, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. All right, most of us right there, like that is just not erotic. That is not doing it for me. I have a brother, uh-uh, right? No, no. If I think of him, it kills all erotic feelings. Um, all right, so before we judge him too quickly, he will often refer to her as his sister, his bride, my sister, my bride. She talks about him, I, I wish you were my brother. This isn't actually, she's not saying, I wish you were related to me by close DNA, right? She's not saying we came from the same close genetic pool. What, what she's saying is I have strong affection for you. And if you were my brother, it would give me freedoms that I, that I don't currently have, right? Uh, if I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. In that culture, uh, a man and a woman that were attracted had, had these huge walls between them. They had these social propriety things they had to follow. They, they couldn't talk to each other in public. They couldn't, they couldn't show affection to each other in public. Um, and, and even when they were courting, there were very strict rules. And, and so what she's saying is, I wish you were my brother because I could show, I could pour my affection out on you all the time like even in public. And nobody would, nobody would be freaked out about it. I, I'm just, I, I feel this yearning for you, right? And so you're like, dude, I'm still stuck on brother. <laughs> I just can't get over that. Well, here's the thing, you guys. We got to give them some freedom with their colloquialisms, right? Let's say I send you a thousand years in the future with, with one of your love notes or, or love emails or love tweets. I don't know what you do. Um, a little love tweet. Hey, bae, you're hot. I miss you, love right? Real romantic. Um, I send you a thousand years in the future and the people then are, are studying your tweet, your love tweet. They're like, what is this bay thing? Well, it means babe. It means baby. You're comparing your girlfriend erotically to a baby? Can you explain that to me? I'm in a, could you explain it to me, please? Tell me what that means. Some of you are like, ah, I can't. I don't know what that means. I just say it, right? That's, well, maybe that's the way they were too. We, we do things. It's a term of endearment. Well, what is a baby? A soft, a small? I don't know how it ties in. But for us, it just has become this little term of endearment. Hey, baby, right? Hey, hey, right? Um, so, but, hey, sister. Hey, brother. I, mean, I don't know. So, so that's the kind of the play of the language, this intimacy, this, this kind of, you know, and, and the image of the mother. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anything less erotic than the image of a mother. Um, mother-in-law, mother, and she's constantly referring to the mother's breasts. She's referring to the mother's, you know, this, I'm going to take you to the chamber where my mother conceived me. I mean, that's just like a total killer. No, thank you. Right. Um, but in this culture, mothers played an important role in the development of, of the sexual development of their daughters, um, as they do today. I mean, reality is, is the mother is the chief coach, advisor, teacher, right? About, how to become a sexual being and how to find fulfillment and, and how to be that person. And in this culture, especially, um, the mothers became kind of the sole source of information. And, and, and even in cultures today, as crazy as it seems to us, there are situations where the, the wedding couple on their first night, the, the mother will be sitting outside the tent to give help and advice, right? She's there to coach, right? Like, I'm here to be your love coach, Right, and so they, the mothers were seen as investing in the sexual pleasure identity um, 
uh, freedom of their daughters to make sure that, that the, and so this presence of the mother, that's when, she, when I will lead you, right? In verse two, I will lead you and bring you to the house of my mother who, who used to teach me, right? She's the one that taught me in the ways of love. I'm going to bring you to this house. And when there are references to her bringing um, him to the, the chamber in which she was conceived or the chapter eight, there's a, a, another notable verse where, where she awakens him under the tree where he, his mother conceived him. It's this idea of fertility that overshadows the poetry, the, the ultimate movement of consummation to the reproduction of life, right? Erotic love coming together in the celebration of life and producing life. And so you see this image, um, this motif repeated throughout the, um, the poetry, okay? Um, goes on, I will give you spiced wine to drink. So she's talking about luring him in, in a sense, drawing him in. And at this point, it's fantasy language. Like, I would do this. I would, I would bring you into my mother's chamber, the place of intimacy. And I would give you spiced wine to drink. Again, another motif that runs through in chapter one, verse two, she says, let me, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine. Um, the idea here obviously is, is that the effect of love on, um, on me is like a drug. It's like wine. It, it, it makes me tipsy. It makes me dizzy. It, it, it knocks me a little loopy. I, I can't think straight, right? The great theologian Kesha says it this way. She says, your love, your love, your love is my drug. It's deep. But that's essentially what she's saying. She's saying there's an erotic effect of your presence on me. It, it, it lights me up. It makes my cheeks glow. It, 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 it makes me Hot and bothered, right? It's, it's this, this intoxicating effect of love. But notice what she's saying. She's saying, I want to take you to my, my, the chamber, my mother's chamber, which is the place of, of intimacy, and I want to give you wine. I want to intoxicate you. Um, there's been a, a lot of teaching through this book in recent years, and, and um, there, is a, there is a biblical principle that, that men are designed to lead in their homes, and men are designed to lead in their families. That's biblical. Uh, and one of the great crises in our culture, in our time, and in our church is the passivity of men who should be showing initiative and, and leading. Guys basically just sitting back and, and, and saying, you know, you need to take care of me instead of them stepping up and taking care of, of problems and leading. And, 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 and I'm not saying that in any way to, to belittle the leadership of women. I'm just saying that, that men are, are, are designed to initiate. But that doesn't mean that they're exclusive in their initiation. We see, in fact, she initiates more in this book of poetry than he does. She makes the first move. She initiates. And what she's saying here is, I want to make you drunk. (laughs) I want to see what effect I have on you. I want to give pleasure to you because in giving pleasure to you, I take pleasure. And if, and if we're missing what she's saying, the next phrase makes it very clear. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. Now, a pomegranate was a very, very sweet fruit. It's fairly exotic. It's fairly common for us today because we can get most things easily. Um, but the pomegranate was this, this reddish fruit that when you cut it open was filled with these, these incredibly um, sweet 
little seeds that were just exploding with juice. And what she's saying is, is the juice, of, I would love you for you to drink the juice of my pomegranate. Steve, that, that sounds um, suggestive. I know, right? It really does. Uh, and it is. If, if you're thinking, does it mean? Yes, it does. Um, and that's as far as I'm going to explain it. So in, in, in verse 3, she goes on, and now they've moved from, from this is what I want to happen to what is happening. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. Left hand under his head, his right hand embraces me. This is no friend zone side hug. This is an embrace. This is the initiation of consummation. This is desire moving to express desire and celebration and even delight in the yearning, celebration and delight of, of, of the tension of what's building to the consummation, the holy, godly, beautiful consummation of a man and woman bound together um, in holy covenant in marriage, moving into the celebration of, of an asexual embrace. Um, it is the the process, and that's what this whole book is about, is that celebration. And, and God designed it this way, you guys. God designed it, this, this yearning that's within us that moves toward desire, that moves toward expression, that moves toward me putting myself out there in vulnerability and moving toward you and you moving toward me. And, 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 and that yearning coming to a place of expression, of mutual love, admiration, receiving and giving and intimacy and, and consummation. It is a process of awakening, increasing, and fulfilling sexual desire and the delight of love. So after this verse of describing their embrace, they have now moved into um, the place of consummation. Verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem. Okay, again, they're not hanging out in the bedroom while this is happening. She is basically poetically speaking now to this audience. The daughters of Jerusalem, were, were, they signify women who are less experienced, Women who are younger, who, who need to be taught. And this book of poetry is both a celebration of erotic love and a book of instruction to those that are learning about erotic love and growing in, in what it means to, to honor God with the gift of sex. And she, uh, she basically looks at the daughters of Jerusalem, these younger women, and says to them, I adjure you, I put this weight on you, I, I command you that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases what she's saying is, I'm, I'm, I can't warn you sternly enough. What I am describing is beautiful. What I am describing is powerful. What I'm describing is real. And I warn you, I put this weight on you. Don't be foolish with erotic love. Don't awaken it before it's time. Because the same fire that warms is the same fire that destroys the same fire that was given to you by God for you to celebrate and to love in its proper context, out of context, is absolutely destructive. It's a safe place to light a fire in your house, and that's the fireplace. How foolish would you be to go to the kitchen and light a fire? But I like its warmth. Yeah, you're destroying your own house. That's kind of what she's saying. I'm warning you, there's a time and a place. Don't do this foolishly. So I want to unpack a little bit what that means. How do we understand erotic love? How do we understand how it fits into the broader scope? Like what we're having here is a description of a couple who have gone through a process. 
<laughs> right? We assume they met. <laughs> we assume that they kind of liked each other, right? And they went through the process of getting to know each other, and, 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 and then they actually just, you know, got married, right? Whether it was arranged or whatever. But obviously, in, in our poetry, they're not just tolerating each other, right? This is much more than toleration, This is mutual celebration, right? So how do we move through that process? And how do we understand erotic love in the context of the full flow of love in our lives? All right, so I want to do that by by discussing specifically erotic love and then moving on to the other loves. The word erotic actually comes from the Greek word eros. Um, And and erotic love is, is one of four words that was used in Greek to describe love. In the English language, we're a little bit hampered. We have a beautiful language. Eng- language. English is one of the most flexible languages that's ever existed on the face of the earth. It's adaptable and has become really almost the language of the world. And it's crazy that we only have one word for love. I mean, seriously, I love steak. I love my kids. I love Dan and I love Clint, my fellow elders. Love them. We have been in the trenches together. We have cried together. We have figuratively bled together. And I love my wife. And all four of those things mean something very, very different. <laughs> or I'm in trouble, right? Um, that one word is used to describe. It's like a junk drawer word, right? It's like love. Describe that. Love. We, we, it, it creates a little bit of difficulty. Like some guys have a really hard time saying they love each other. Like two dudes, you know, because it's like, well, I, I love you, but I don't mean like that. Right? Um, well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I, I, love, I love him, but I don't love him. Right? So here's the thing. Eng- English is limited. Greek had four words for love. The first was eros. Okay. Eros is a Greek word that speaks of the erotic sexual love, right? Not surprising. Eros, erotic, very clearly tied to the yearning and the desire of awakening sexual restlessness. The apostle Paul in the New Testament described this love as a burning, which wasn't derogatory. It was just a a description of how it actually manifests itself in our lives. It often is a burning. It's an awakening of a desire that is, that is uncomfortable. It hurts, Right? It's something, it's like an appetite for something very specific. And if you can't eat it, 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 it's very, very uncomfortable. Right? So it's like a burning or a yearning. Um, it is powerful. It is really like a, a physical hunger at times. And, and when it awakens, um, it is not just a psychological, it is a physiological experience. Right? When somebody goes through puberty and they awaken to sexual desire, um, it can be a ravenous fire right? It can be very, very strong. That's, that's eros. That's erotic love, okay? The next love that I want to talk about is phileo. Phileo um, is a friendship love. Um, it, it is used for kinship, like, um, like with my friendship with, with Dan and Clint. I, I phileo them. It's a deep kinship. It's a deep affection for them. We've shared experiences together, um, and, and, and as a result, we share a deep affection for one another. Phileo love is marked by a growing emotional bond. And, and, and you know how you can like fall in love? What that means is, is something triggers an erotic response in your heart that you have no control over, right? So, so falling in love usually means, um, okay, I saw something I liked and um, I was drawn to it, right? And, and, and it's, I responded to it. I didn't initiate it. That's why it's falling, right? You can fall into friendship too. 
you can fall into phileo love. It's a response. Like, like I can meet somebody and we can just hit it off. I don't intentionally move into friendship with them, but, but we find this common circle of, of reference and we just kind of delight in each other, right? And it's like, oh, wow, I think I just actually met a new friend, right? Sometimes it, it'll happen in unexpected places. It might be somebody that you didn't even see, somebody that, that you just kind of wrote off because of the way they look or where they were. And you're like, I wouldn't have anything in common with them. And, and you're in this conversation with them. And you're, all of a sudden you're like, holy cow. I have this phileo. I have like a fondness for them. We, we're kind of hitting it off. You can fall into friendship, right? Um, so phileo love is, is this friendship, this kinship, this, this affection. The third kind of love is storge. Storge is the word. This one is probably the hardest to translate into English because one, culturally, we resist it. We don't like it. We misunderstand it. Um, and two... Um, we really just don't have a word that translates it well. Um, storge looks as, at love or, or friendship as a duty, not a response. Um, it's a bond, right? Think about it like a family bond. Um, storge at its finest is like a mother's love for her child. Is she bond, bonded to that child? Does she have a sense of protection and ownership over that child? Absolutely. Happens in a family too. Um, you don't get to choose your family right? Um, you grow up with them. Uh, your brothers, your sisters, um, you may or may not really like them a lot of the time, um, but I, you're bound to them. You have storge love. Why? Because nobody else understands your crazy family like they do. Nobody else understands your history, your life, the way it's interplayed with you like they do. You have a shared experience. And as a result, you kind of have a duty with it. You know, it's like, so maybe you don't even necessarily like them. You don't have a lot in common. You don't spend a lot of time with them. But would you want to know if they were in crisis? Yeah. Why? Because if they're in crisis, I have a duty to step in and help them. Because in some sense, I'm obligated to them and they're obligated to me. There's a sense in which they belong to me in a unique way, and I belong to them in a unique way. That's storge love. It's a sense of mutual possession. Another idea that culturally we don't like. We don't like the idea of love as duty because that seems foreign to us. That's not pure love. And, and we don't like the idea of, of love as ownership because that sounds dehumanizing. Um, but, but there is a very real sense that when you move into an emotional connection with people, there is a sense of ownership. Like, like you're mine and I'm yours. And, and, and I can expect things from you, and you can expect things from me, right? Um, so storge is that bond of commitment, that bond of obedience, if you want to put it that way. And so it says that, I may not like you all the time. Sometimes I'm only tolerating you, but I am obligated to you. I am bound to you. Now, here's the thing, you guys. Think about um, how you move through a relationship with people. Um, you will normally um, have a spurring of, of erotic, like I'm talking about romantic relationship. Um, and so a guy sees something he likes, a girl has a conversation with a guy and it sparks something in her heart. Um, and, and then, and then um, it moves to phileo where there's a, a building friendship. And, and then if they stick around long enough, there's eventually the building of sorge, right? Um, and, um, and storge is um, powerful. If you think about it like layers in a river, Eros is the surface. It's the quickest to be felt. It's the most turbulent. It's fickle. It, it responds to the, like this surface layer of a river, it responds to the temperature of the air, the logs that are in its way. It just kind of flows. It's totally responsive. 
So it's responsive to the environment. That's our erotic love. It's responsive to the environment. Things trigger it. There will thing, be things that arouse you that you have no control over. Um, and, and, and that's not, nothing wrong with that necessarily, right? And so um, it, it is purely responsive. Phileo is also responsive, right? I, I feel kinship and friendship for things that I find attractive. I, I find that with people that I have things in common with. I, I don't just feel phileo for people that are radically different from me, that are in fact opposed to me. I don't. I don't, I don't feel that kind of kinship with them. I feel phileo. It's a response to what I find in you. Storge... So eros is, is the most fickle. Phileo is a little bit deeper, right? If you're going through the, the currents in the river, phileo is a little bit deeper. Storge is a little bit deeper yet. Storge comes after time has been invested. Relationship built, experiences shared, and there comes this sense of obligation, right? And, and so once storge is established, there's a sense in which I owe something to you and you owe something to me. In a dating relationship, that's often when they start going steady, right? Things become exclusive. Why? Because what you're admitting is we've moved on to this deeper level of relationship where you owe me something and I owe you something, and it's mutually given and, and, and ultimately exclusive. The challenge, though, is that storge, while it is deep, is not strong enough to hold a relationship together. Because the same thing that attracted you will in most cases eventually repel you. Somebody that you are erotically drawn to, after the mystery is gone, the eroticism dies off. The friendship piece, you know, after you really get to know somebody and you find out what they're really like, and you actually have to put up with them, not just when they're on their best behavior. Not just when they've prepped for the big night, but you actually see them 24-7 and all of their ugliness and all of their selfishness and all of their, and, and things get strained, eros and phileo. For a season of time, Storge will hold that relationship together because there's a, a mutual uh, obligation, mutual bond. But eventually, Storge will break too, right? And that's what we call the falling out of love speech. That's the speech that says, you know, I, I just don't love you anymore. I don't feel the same way about you anymore. It's not you, it's me. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but we always say it. It's not you, it's me. It's trying to make people feel less bad because I'm now rejecting you. That's what I'm saying. That bond that you used to have on me, that sense of ownership, it's not yours anymore. I'm severing it. <laughs> Isn't breaking up fun? <laughs> it's really not. It hurts, right? It hurts no matter what. Because every time we move into oneness, which is really what we're talking about, love always moves toward oneness, that thing we talked about last week. And then we break the one apart. A piece of us is gone. It hurts. Story is not strong enough. You guys, most of the marriages in America fail. Oh, it's no secret. Over 50% of the marriages end in divorce. Why? Because that right there describes most people's life. They were attracted to somebody. Um, now, here's the thing, you guys. Eros is responsive, right? You ever been attracted to somebody until you talk to them? And then you're like, no. You're like, no, I've never had that experience. Maybe you should try talking to somebody. 
Stop just being attracted to people and walking away in your fantasy land. Actually have a conversation with a real woman or a real guy. And you will find that often that initial attraction dies, right? Oh, you're hot and dumb. <laughs> that killed it, right? Oh, you are, what do we say? A tall drink of water on a hot day. Hmm. Thought you're a jerk, huh? All right. Not anymore, right? I mean, Eris is, 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 is highly attracted, quickly flames up, and quickly dies. It's responsive, right? Um, and, and, and what ends up happening is if it doesn't move to phileo, it dies very quickly. That's your, that's your passing glance. That's your, 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 your quick affair. That's your one-night stand. Um, and, 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 of course, and in saying that, it's, that's all destructive, right? Because um, Eros is a fire, that needs its proper place to burn. And when we misuse it, we abuse ourselves. Scripture says it's the one sin that when we commit it, we sin against ourselves. Like we actually damage our own souls. Okay? Um, but when it moves to phileo, then we have things in common. And as we have things in common, eros actually gets stronger. It's, a, it's a, an environment in which that erotic love can actually grow. The attraction actually grows because now we have things in common and we talk about things. And he makes me smile and she makes me laugh and we have these activities, right? And, and so that is the deepening of love. And it's as that love deepens, storge naturally is the result. It grows out of that shared experience and time put in together. But the problem is since both of those loves are responsive, they generally stop responding. And something else triggers them. Whereas you were erotically attracted to your girlfriend or your boyfriend, and then you found this common area of phileo, and over a period of time, they're just not as interesting. (laughs) They're people like normal people, and they're actually kind of difficult to get along with sometimes. And, And they have demands, and it's hard, and and, oh, hey, there's somebody else. And they're exotic. They're different. They have problems, I'm sure, but they're different from his. I'm ready for a new set of problems. So what ends up happening is because it's responsive, it's not even a choice, your heart will start to be drawn away. And, and that's the story, man, of our culture, isn't it? The story of our culture. Hook up, shack up, break up. Cycles over and over and over, Right? Broken hearts, people shattered. See, what we need is a much deeper current in our understanding of love. If this is a river, we need something deeper and stronger than storge, and that's the fourth word, that's agape. Agape love is not love as duty. It is love as duty. But it's primarily love as delight. It is a duty driven by delight. This is, of all of the loves, the one that's most foreign to us because it is a self-giving, self-negating love. In other words, it's a love that says, I will delight in you, period. Not if, not when. I will delight in you. I choose to delight in you. This is a covenant love. It's a love that says, because I have covenanted together with you, to love you, I will. And it won't just be a duty, it'll be a delight. You will be my delight with all of your brokenness, with all of your sin, with all of your hurt, with all of your baggage. You will be my delight. You're like, I can't do that, Steve. I know. That's why this word is practically unheard of in classical Greek. 
It was there, but it was very, very seldom used because there was no context in which it could be used. It exploded in use when the New Testament was written. Why? Because it was the only word that could accurately describe the love of God. A God who chose to love us in spite of us. A God who said, I choose to love you, the rebel. I choose to love you, the sinner. I choose to love you who willingly walked away from me, your creator, and degraded yourself. You who look to the gifts of God instead of God to find your deepest satisfaction. You who betrayed my heart and broke covenant with me. I choose to love you and I'm going to show you how much I love you. I will step into your degradation. I will live the life you should have lived and I'll die the death you deserve to die. I will be your substitute. I will take your place. I will die for you. And I will rise again, proving the payment is complete. And I will invite you back into a loving relationship, a one-way love. Agape love doesn't say I love you because I find you attractive. Agape love doesn't say I love you because you've provoked me, right? God doesn't look at us and say, oh, you just melted my heart. You're so unique. In all of God's creation, you are the most glorious. So I love you. No, God looks at us and he says, you're a sinner. He tells us the truth. Your sin is black. <laughs> the absence of light. Your sin is, is repulsive to God. But he says, you will be my delight and I will pay the price to not just forgive you, but to cleanse you, not just to wipe away your past, but to give you a glorious future. That's agape love. Self-giving, self-negating commitment to the good of the other in spite of how it feels. I will delight in you. And as I delight in you, I will make you delightful. I will love you, not because you're beautiful, but to make you beautiful. That's agape love. And that is God's love. If our relationships are going to have sticking power, if we're going to be able to navigate the changing seasons of life, the maturing that just happens, the difficulties that come with two broken people coming together trying to make one perfect union, if we're going to navigate that, We need to be flowing in agape love. It is the deepest, most powerful current. It has the ability to direct the entire river to its proper place. But how are we supposed to give what we cannot give? How am I supposed to give agape love when it's so unnatural to me? Because the reality is, I like what I like. I'm attracted to what I'm attracted to. I take pleasure in what gives me pleasure. It's really hard for me to say I delight in something I don't like. How am I supposed to in those times? Because there will come times in your marriage where you look at them and say, I don't like you. You're not attractive to me right now. You're definitely not turning me on. Not happening. How's your relationship? How is your marriage supposed to survive that? It only survives. 
and thrives, not just survives, but thrives if you've tapped into agape love. And there's only one way to tap, tap into agape love. It's God's love, not yours, which means you first have to receive it before you can give it. The only way for you to move into agape love in your relationship is to go deep in your experience of agape love. Knowing that you are loved unconditionally. That you are loved not because you earned it, but because Jesus earned it for you. You are loved and delighted in, not because of who you will be someday, but because who God has declared you to be right now. You guys get that? When God looks at you right now, if you are a believer in Jesus, he sees Jesus. He delights in you. Yeah, Steve, you don't know what I did last night. I don't need to know. Because the reality is if you saw your heart, it's way worse than last night. Way worse. You see the tip of the iceberg of the ugliness that's in your soul. God sees it all. And guess what? He already sent Jesus to die for you. And if he's already given you his best... How's he not going to give you the rest? If he has loved you at your worst, why do you have to be afraid? Do you realize that God's not looking at you saying, when are you going to measure up? Like, like, like one of those stern fathers, like, I really like you. I see a bright future for you, a lot of promise. But you're not living up to your potential right now. Why don't you try a little harder? Let's do a little better. And what we put on God when we image him that way is basically this distance, him basically saying, I'll love you when. And that is such an unbiblical view of God. That is not who he's revealed himself to be, and it is not a true image of who he is. Agape love. For us to go deep in agape love means that we wrestle with the darkness of our soul knowing we are loved we actually learn to receive love, unconditional, unearned love. When we sin, we don't go beat ourselves up for a little while before we go confess it to God. Why do we do that, you know? Like you do something bad and you're like, I can't even pray right now. Why are you doing that? Because you know what you're saying? Is I have to somehow earn my way back into the presence of God. (laughs) That's not faith, that's works. You are at that point saying, Jesus is no longer sufficient. I have to earn it back. God must not love me right now. I'm going to go beat myself up for a little while just to show him how sorry I am. That is not faith. That's weak faith. See, we need to go deep in agape love and know that we are loved even at our worst. We are delighted in even when we are in rebellion. Because Jesus paid the price. You go deep in that kind of love. You know what's going to happen? It's going to change your heart. It's going to change your heart. Nothing changes our heart like love. Nothing humbles us. Nothing frees us. Nothing delivers us to joy like love. And and agape love is God's power manifest to us to change us. And as we go deep in God's love, it teaches us to go deep in our love with others. You want sticking power in your relationships? You need to have sticking power in your relationship with God. You need to be going deep in agape love with God so that you can actually learn to share that kind of love with others. It's an unnatural love for you, but it's perfectly natural to God. And as you are going deep in your relationship with God and experiencing his love and celebrating your forgiveness in Christ, and and it changes you. And you'll learn to love better, to give love more freely, to demand less, to love more.
This is the gospel, the good news. And it is great news for our marriages and our relationships. As Eros ebbs, as phileo gets strained, as storge just gets tired of holding on, a renewed sense of God's love flowing into me empowers me. It is deep, it is powerful, it is real. You guys, I'm going to throw a few points. First of all, this, and God says that, that as a young person, if you're single and pursuing, God tells you to marry a believer. So not only is that a command, but it's wisdom. You want to go to this deep level with whoever you marry. You want to go there. It is the place of most intimate oneness. It is the place of most profound joy. It is the place of of greatest unity. When you are divided at that deep level, you can only go so deep and you will forever have a strain in your marriage, a tension that at times will feel like it will tear you apart. I have counseled many, many people who are living that situation out every single day. It breaks my heart. You don't want to go there. It's, it's not just sin. It's just common sense. You, you want to be able to move into the deepest level of oneness with whoever you're pursuing and whoever you will, you will marry. So as we do this, here's a couple application things that um, I want us to think about. First of all, if you're married, if you're married, invest in the deeper currents of love. Dudes, don't just focus on the erotic, <laughs> Right? is if you just focus on the erotic, what happens? You will become bored quickly. Why? Because it's fickle. And you're going to become incredibly dissatisfied with your wife. And you're not only going to destroy your own heart, you're going to destroy whatever intimacy you had in your marriage. Focus on the deeper currents of love. Now, erotic love is good. (laughs) It's a gift from God. And, and I believe as followers of Christ in committed covenant relationships, it should be enjoyed richly, deeply, and frequently. Okay? That's the reality. If you're married, it should be in a very, very important part of your marriage, unless there's biological reasons or other issues that, that may get in the way of it. But here's the thing. Sexual union is not the most satisfying part of marriage. And if you want to have a few rapids in your marriage... You need to have deep currents. And that means you need to be investing in your spiritual relationship. You need to be investing in your, your, your psychological, your, 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 your phileo relationship, your friendship. You need to be building those deeper, into those deeper currents. In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking specifically how we do that. I'm going to unpack that idea much more in depth. All right, single. If you're single, don't arouse erotic love foolishly. Listen to the woman in the poem. Listen to the bride when she says, I adjure you, daughters of Jerusalem. I adjure you, those who are not yet married. I adjure you, do not awaken. Do not arouse erotic love before it's time. Don't be a fool. That's what she's saying. Eros is the fastest and most turbulent current in the river. It's the one that we feel the fastest. And, and, and you guys know, man, I mean, there's times when, when that erotic thing kicks in and, and you just hear the invitation, come ride my rapids, 
right? Everything in you is like, I want to go down that river, right? It's lit up. And honestly, yeah, it's, uh, it's alluring, okay? Now, here's the thing. Um, since erotic love is a responsive love, it, it will respond to the environment. And, and it can be very powerful. And sometimes that's completely out of your control. Sometimes it's not, though, you guys. You can make choices about whether, how you manage this tension. It is a, erotic love is a powerful, powerful force, a powerful desire in our lives. And you can make choices not to awaken it. You can make choices to manage it. There are times when, when those responses are out of your control. But the reality, it is, it is something that can be controlled and managed. Here's the thing. He's saying, in the face of these desires, don't awaken it, don't invest in it, don't arouse it until it's time. When's the right time to arouse it? When you're ready to swim in all four currents, which means when you're ready to move into an exclusive covenant marriage relationship with one person for the rest of your life. If you are not ready to swim in all four currents, you are a fool to swim in the erotic, to light it up. It's just not the right time. So Steve, what are you saying? I shouldn't date? If I'm, if I'm not ready to get married, if I'm not emotionally mature enough, or if I'm not at a stage of life where I can actually get married, should I not date? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying I, I shouldn't date someone that I, that I know I would never marry? Yes, you're catching it. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> totally countercultural. I know. I know. In our culture, we see dating as a recreational pastime. Lighting up the erotic circuits is really just a way to defeat boredom in our culture. It's like, I'm bored. Uh, look at porn. I'm bored. I'll go on a date, see if I can hook up. I'm bored. We're just trying to escape the mundane boredom that, that plagues our lives. Well, first of all, get past the boredom and get on mission with God. It's way more exciting than, than just living for self-pleasure. And secondly, realize that that's actually damaging. We are called on to actually manage don't light it up. If we're not ready to move into marriage, we shouldn't be igniting the currents that move toward the place where those desires can only properly be fulfilled. Now, here's the thing, you guys. You can, and that's what I'm gonna say, you can invest in phileo. Phileo is a deeper level of love than eros. There's nothing wrong with, in fact, it's, everything's good about investing in phileo. Build deep and healthy relationships. Build deep and healthy friendships. Learn how to open yourself up to friendships. Learn how to be friends with somebody of the opposite sex <laughs> without using them for self-gratification. Develop deep and healthy friendships. Learn emotional and physical self-control that will be fulfilling and satisfying. And at the proper time, when you are ready, awaken erotic love. See, if you do it too soon, it's like this newbie kayaker who, who is like, oh, I'm safe. I'm, I'm, I'm a mile above the rapids. You know, we got class six rapids down there. Professionals die every year down there. But I'm all the way up here and the water looks nice and calm and it's really inviting. So I'm just going to come out here and paddle around a little bit. No, oh, this is nice. The wind feels good. The current's picking up a little bit. That's exciting. 
right? Things are moving in the right direction. This is really nice. Here's the thing. You are in deadly danger before you realize you're even in danger. That's why the warning is so stern. I adjure you. Don't awaken it before it's time because it doesn't end well. If you awaken the erotic stream without being able to run in the others, it only ends in pain. No matter how exciting it is in the short term. If you are dating someone who refuses to honor you sexually, they're always demanding more of you. You are dating the wrong person. Break up. And I'm telling you, not just from a biblical perspective, they're trying to lead you into sin, but from a good advice, wisdom perspective. Because here's the thing. They find you incredibly alluring right now, and, and everything in them is saying, I want you. What happens when you're no longer alluring? They don't have emotional self-control. They've never developed that level of maturity. So what ends up happening is when they finally get bored of you, which they will, they're going to get lit up on somebody else. The same emotional immaturity that right now is feeding needs in you where it's like, oh, he wants me, he loves me, or, or she finds me desirable and masculine. Those same desires will be diverted somewhere else when you are no longer erotically interesting because that person doesn't have the emotional maturity to discipline themselves to be a one-person person. Just telling you the truth. Dudes, I don't think I need to mention a lot, but I will say, obviously, um, you need to deal with your issue of porn. Porn is purely an investment in the erotic stream. It is awakening all the desires um, without any of the fulfillment. Um, It's unhealthy. It's unwise. And I know for some of you, it's incredibly difficult to kick. And I'm not saying this to shame you because I know how dark that dungeon can be. I know how deep that slavery can be. And I know I'm talking to some of the gals right now too. I'm inviting you into the light. I'm not saying kick it and then come to the light. I'm saying come to the light and we'll help you kick it. I mean, there's only one way to deal with your isolation and it's by moving into community. Community, by the way, is one of the cures to your addiction. The reason you're enslaved is because you have deep needs that are not being met in community and and your shame is causing you to hide and pull away from the very thing you need to move into healthy relationships and and into a a better relationship with God and and, and into more self-control, emotional and physical self-control in this area. You need to deal with it. It's unhealthy, it's unnatural, and it's damaging. Ladies, the same goes for you. Now, men tend to be highly visual, right? Men, men by and large, are erotically aroused by what they see. So they see a shape, and, and that shape excites them. In fact, when they're usually moving, and this is the reality, when a guy's moving into a relationship, one of the first things he usually thinks is, oh, I like what I see. I wonder if I like who it is, <laughs> which seems so backwards. Shouldn't we be starting with, oh, I like who it is, you know? Uh, but that's, guys are just wired visually. Gals, I'm not saying that's exclusive. Some guys aren't. But for the most part, gals are wired by what they feel. When a guy makes them feel loved, when a guy makes them feel secure, when a guy makes them feel um, beautiful, they respond to that. And, and here's the thing, you guys. Awakening love at the wrong times. Guys go to porn. It's highly visual. Some gals do too. Gals go to stories. And we have seen over the last four years an explosion in story-based pornography. 
Why? Because there's an untapped market of women who were not being um, exploited by the pornography that was already there. Pornography is a, is a trillion-dollar business, and it has been largely geared toward men. And, and over the last four years, we've seen this explosion of story-based porn that appeals to how women are wired. Fifty Shades of Grey is a perfect example of, of this idea that you start to identify with this young woman who is having these erotic sexual exploits with this guy who, who is broken but redeemable and she has this savior complex. And of course, we always love the wounded puppy the most. And, and, and so you, it just arouses all of these desires. It's pornography. It's emotional porn combined with visual porn but it's pornography. Why? Because it's lighting up the erotic out of the context of moving into oneness. It's unhealthy. It is damaging. Be wise. Be wise. If you think I'm being prudish, you guys, the reality is New York Times, CBS, I mean, they're calling, everyone calls it porn. Softcore porn in its initial release and then the unrated version is coming out later because those who read the book will not be satisfied with the softcore version. It doesn't get dirty enough. It doesn't get dark enough. So they'll be releasing an NC-17 version afterwards for those that are really in love with the book. It's porn. Third thing, everyone. Don't believe that sex is the deepest, most intimate, most fulfilling form of human love. Don't believe that sex is the deepest, most intimate, most fulfilling form of human love. We have this cultural lie that says, if I am not sexually fulfilled, I am not fully human. If I am not sexually fulfilled, I can't really be a whole person. That's a lie. It's not biblical. Now, the church has echoed that in its idolatry of the nuclear family, basically saying that it's God's plan for every person to get married and have kids. It's not Jesus didn't get married, and he was fully human and had the full human experience. He was fully satisfied. Paul never got married and, in fact, laid out a theology that justified singleness, not only saying is it an option, but saying it's, it's actually, in some cases, preferable. Why? Because our deepest need is not for sex, it's for oneness. Our deepest need is for community, knowing and being known. You can be single and swim in the deep channels of love. You can move into phileo and storge and agape without ever awakening eros. And you are no worse off for it because your deepest needs can be met in those things. Jesus said that in the coming kingdom, there will be no marriage nor giving in marriage. I don't know fully what that means, but what it seems to indicate is that there's not going to be sexual relationships when the kingdom comes that things are going to shift a little bit. We'll still be fully human, but that peace is going to change. Well, that means that that's not an essential part of humanity. It's not an essential part of actually being created in the image of God. What is essential is community. I even hear stories of, 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 of accounts of people moving into covenant friendships, people that have chosen to be single, and they covenant together, basically saying, I will covenant with you. It's an agape act of saying, I'm going to be your friend forever. No matter how life changes, no matter where it takes us, I commit myself to you. You commit yourself to me. And our deepest needs will be met as we move into this experience of oneness and community. Do not believe that sex is the deepest, most intimate, most fulfilling form of human love. It is a good gift. 
given by a good God. And it is given to delight us and to, um, to intrigue us and to, to deliver us pleasure. It, it, it's designed to be beautiful, but it is not the penultimate experience of human oneness. Bottom line is we need human connection. We need human community. And you can choose to move into deep intentional relationships with others without it ever turning into sexual relationships. All right, we're going to move into time response. I'm going to um, create some space. I, I'm trusting that God has stirred some things up over the course of this morning. Some things that you need to pray about, some things you need to do some business with God about, maybe to confess or maybe just to come and have Him love you. Um, uh, things that, that maybe, maybe, maybe you've never thought about faith in Christ like I've described it today. And you need to just come before God and ask Him, what does it mean to believe in Jesus like that? to trust him as my savior, not just for the future, but for now. What does it mean to be loved, to actually allow myself to be loved like that? So I'm going to create some space for you. And as I do, I want to give you some response questions uh, to help lead your, your thinking. First, if you're single, what does it look like for you to guard your heart and not arouse love foolishly? Maybe that means um, not pursuing somebody you were thinking about pursuing. Maybe that means stopping pursuing somebody that you were pursuing. Maybe it means you need to look at a relationship you're in and ask, is this relationship healthy? Is this relationship honoring God? Is this relationship taking me to where I want to be, which is God's blessing? If not, what is God telling you to do? Secondly, if you're married... How are you investing in the deeper currents of your love in your marriage? Instead of just whining and feeling sorry for yourself because maybe things aren't as intimate or as joyful or as exciting as they once were, how are you actually investing into the deeper currents of agape and phileo, building your friendship, investing in your mutual bond, going deep in your relationship with God personally and with your spouse? Thirdly, How are you investing in your need for true, deep, God-honoring community? Because it is a need. Are you just so busy that you just have people around you? You have buddies, you have have, have, um, people that are just like in your frame of circle, but none of them really know you. You're not really sharing agape love with any of them, deep, deep love. If you're married... Have you allowed your circle of friends to grow so close that you have put all of your expectations on your spouse? Not realizing that when you put God weight on your marriage, you crush your marriage because your spouse cannot be God to you. What does it look like for you to go deep in your relationship with God? To take the God weight off your spouse? What does it look like for you to expand that circle and invite others into your circle of community? Introvert, extrovert, doesn't matter. Uh, so that you are actually experiencing um, a truer, deeper, broader sense of community with people that are part of the body of Christ. All right, let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response and we'll share communion in a moment. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of love and that in your love you have absolutely committed yourself to our good. You've paid the price we couldn't pay to give us a life we could never earn. We thank you, Lord, that we are no longer slaves to sex, that we don't have to use sex to have our deepest needs met. 
our needs for approval, our needs for success, our, our need um, to feel good about ourselves, that that need is most deeply met in your love for us. And that we are now free to approach our, our sexual desires and behaviors from the place of strength, from the place of being loved, not desperate for love. Man, I pray for my friends right now. Lord, I know for some of them, this is, these are words that are echoing in their heart. They so want this, but they are not experiencing it. And Spirit, I pray right now, you would just hover over them like you did when you hovered over the waters of the original creation to create within them the awareness of your love, that they would have a new heart that is alive to your presence, that rejoices in your love, that they can even right now start feeling the gratitude and the joy that comes from being your treasure. I pray for those that are going to have hard conversations coming out of this, difficult things that they're going to have to navigate, that you will give them both courage and grace that you will allow them to step out in faith knowing that your love not only sustains, but your love empowers. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to trust you more than we trust ourselves. Meet us where we are and transform us with your love.